good to see you all here tonight and we trust that God will bless us as we turn to the scriptures uh, this evening and just ponder a little on the things of the uh, of the Lord. It's good to have our uh, brother and sister Jack and Lillian with us. Jack is with us obviously for the ministry, so we'll a bit more about that later on. And it's uh, a pleasure to renew fellowship with them <coughs> in the Lord's things. Our opening hymn tonight is number 127. 127 please. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows, now from the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow, crown him. Crown him, angels, crown him, crown the Saviour, King of kings. Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Saviour's claim. Saints and angels crowd around him on his title. Praise his name. We'll stand after the introduction and sing hymn number 127, please. Amen. Hey. 
God in prayer and seek his blessing and his help tonight. <coughs> Our blessed God, we thank thee that as we come into thy presence at the beginning of a gathering such as this, we remember that the one who is known as the man of sorrows was the one of whom we can sing, Jesus takes the highest station. We thank thee for the one who came into this scene, who lived, died, buried, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And we acknowledge with thankfulness and gratitude and worship in our hearts that it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work upon that cross that we are gathered here tonight with a, a desire not begotten of our natural selves but begotten of, uh, in us of thy spirit. A desire to hear what thou the Lord would say to us. And we think of the words of one of old and echo them again in our hearts. Speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. We ask our God that we might not just listen, although we pray that we might do that attentively, but that we might not just listen, but we might also apply that which thou dost bring before us from thy word, that it might draw us closer to the person of Christ, that it might make us more zealous in the things of the Lord, in our work and our service, for him. And so we commit ourselves and this gathering to thee and ask that thou would bless us as again we hear the word read and explain it to us. We thank thee for fellowship with Jack and Lillian and we thank thee that we have them among us over this weekend. We pray thy good hand upon them. And we think of Jack as he serves the Lord among us in these days and ask our God that thou would bless him and help him as he ministers to us in the things of the Lord. And so we commend ourselves to thee now. We ask thy blessing upon us, committing ourselves to thee with thanksgivings in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now again, we just extend a warm welcome to all the gathered, and particularly to, to Jack and Lillian. Jack is, heard, is with us over the weekend, and we trust that the Lord will bless him and use him for the glory of the Lord Jesus and for the blessing of his people as he is among us. There in the ministry tonight, in the ministry tomorrow, and in the gospel in the in the evening. And after we sing our, our next hymn, which is 505, Jack will uh, speak to us. Perhaps I might just mention that the next uh, Saturday night meeting here uh, is in, obviously, in next year, it's on the 14th of January. And we trust to have uh, Brother Joe Chalmers from Perth uh, with us on that occasion. Number 505. Praise the Saviour, ye who know him. Who can tell how much we owe him? Gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Keep us, Lord, O oh, keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing, till the hour of our receiving promised joys in heaven. Again, we'll stand and sing the hymn together. Number 505.
First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now finally, the epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll read at verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now that is our scripture reading, and we trust it is with the blessing of the Lord. Now, as far as younger people are concerned, I suppose that the name Geoffrey Bull means nothing at all. Perhaps you've never heard of the dear man. He was a servant of God, and he served the Lord in uh, Europe, or sorry, I should say Asia, in the Far East. Uh, and he was in Tibet just at the time when the communists had taken over China and they marched into Tibet and Geoffrey Bull was captured and imprisoned by the Chinese communists. He was in prison for over three years and they did all to change his mind about Christianity. They tried to change his thought process. Day by day there was pressure. Often there were threats. There were constant deprivations and so it went on until one day he was threatened that the next day he would be taken out and killed by firing squad. He wondered what he would do. Would he stand with his back to the wall and preach to them? Or would he pray 
what would he do? He decided that if it came to that, he would sing. And what he determined to sing was this. Some glorious morning, sorrow will cease. Some glorious morning, all will be peace. Heartaches all ended, school days all done, heaven will be opened. Jesus will come. Some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. Some golden daybreak, battles all won. He'll shout the victory, break through the blue. Some golden daybreak for me, for you. And he was living in the enjoyment of the fact that, come what may, Christ was coming. And people are telling me in assembly circles these days, we hardly hear about it. We hardly hear it taught. The rapture is scarcely mentioned. They tell us when we were young, we used to hear about it constantly. But it hardly gets a mention nowadays. Well, I wouldn't say that's strictly true. But if that's the perception, well, so be it. But tonight, anyway, I would like to speak to you just very, very simply about the coming again of the Lord Jesus. For the most of you, it's just a refresher course. For some of you, you may be hearing some of these things for the very first time, but I do trust that the Lord will give help as we think about it. We're going to see from John chapter 14, the coming of the Lord was promised. The Lord Jesus pledged himself, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The coming of the Lord promised. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the coming of the Lord is predicted. And in a doctrinal section of the word of God, Paul predicts the fact that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Now, if you prefer the word prophecy, that's no problem with me. A lot of people tell us that prophecy, well, the rapture has nothing to do with prophecy. Well, it all depends on what you mean by prophecy. If you're thinking of a mere prediction about the future, well, it was prophesied. If you're thinking about a New Testament prophecy, then it was a New Testament prophet to whom the truth of the rapture was committed. And he was a steward of the mysteries of God. And one of these mysteries related to the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the strictest sense of the word, it is a prophecy. And so, some of my dear brethren feel more comfortable just to relate prophecy strictly to Israel but it's a prediction and it was communicated by a New Testament prophet so I'm happy enough with the term it was prophesied and then we'll see that it was pictured in Hebrews chapter 11 it was pictured Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him says the historical record and Hebrews 11 puts it this way before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. One moment he was here, the next he was there, and he seems to be a kind of prototype of saints who will be snatched away to meet the Lord Jesus when he descends <coughs> to the air. And so we're going to think about the coming of Christ. We'll call it the rapture. Again, people are uncomfortable with the word. They say, it's not a Bible word. No, you're right, it's not a Bible word. But it is a Bible concept. Mr. Jack Hunter used to tell us, you know, you don't interpret the New Testament with the aid of an English dictionary. Now, he wasn't speaking about an English dictionary in contrast to a Scottish dictionary. He, he was just meaning a secular dictionary. You don't interpret the Bible with the aid of a secular dictionary. 
he was saying. You know, for example, the word mystery. Don't go looking the dictionary to discover what it means. But let me recommend that you check the dictionary for the word rapture. And you'll discover it has two meanings. Number one, ecstatic joy. And people still use it in that way. They were in raptures about the thing. Maybe young people wouldn't speak that way. They would maybe say we were over the moon about it. But older people might say we were in raptures. But then it has this other meaning. A seizing and a carrying away. And the dictionary defines seizing and carrying away with this word, rapture. Now that is the concept that we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Enshrined in that word, caught up, caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the ear. And the word, the Greek word is used in John 10 for example. When we read of the fact that no one is able to pluck us out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. My dear friend, there's a day coming when believers in the Lord Jesus will be plucked, caught up. And we use the word rapture to describe that. So strictly speaking, the word rapture doesn't have so much to do about the Lord coming down, but more of the fact of the saints being caught up. But we tend to use the word rapture just to describe the whole event. We we do that for convenience, and so we're speaking about the rapture. The rapture promised in John 14. I want to take a little stroll with you through these verses at the beginning of John 14 and lift little things and speak about them and see enshrined in them the promise of the rapture. Notice how the Lord Jesus commences, let not your heart be troubled. Now notice that, your heart. And that pronoun your is a plural pronoun. Now this is one of the great advantages of the old-fashioned Bible. Whenever you get a thee and a thou and a thine, it's always singular. Whenever you get a you or a yours, it's always plural. So he's saying to them all, let not your heart. He'd been speaking personally to Peter at the end of chapter 13 and he'd used the singular pronoun. And what he's saying is this to Peter, verily I say unto thee. The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. And if you were a careless reader, you might think, Peter, you're going to deny me. But don't be troubled about that. Don't let that bother you too much. Let not your heart be troubled. No, he stopped speaking to Peter. He's been speaking to him personally. You're going to deny me, Peter. But then he turned from Peter and now he's addressing them all. Let not your heart. Notice it's a singular heart though. Eleven men, but with a single heart. And sometimes you get that concept in the word of God. For example, in the strict translation of a thing that's said about the two delightful folk, Aquila and Priscilla. It says, they laid down their own (coughs) neck for me. Singular. A married couple, two people, and yet a single neck. In other words, they'd sat at one side of the fire and the other side of the fire and they talked the thing through and together they made up their mind, we're going to risk our lives in the interest of this man called Paul. And they were willing to lay down their own neck. Here's two on the way to Emmaus. And they're trudging along, leaden footsteps, heavy hearts. And then eventually, at the end of the day, did not our hearts know, did not our heart burn 
within us. A couple. I think they were a married couple. But at any, they had a single heart. And the, the heart that they had was beating loyally to the Lord Jesus. Did not our heart burn within us? And so here are 11 men with a single heart. My brother, my sister, it would be wonderful if in assembly life, a number of people, everybody involved in the testimony, had a single heart. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, a God whom you've never seen. He's the invisible God. He's the King eternal, invisible. You've never seen him. Even Moses just saw the back parts of God. Even although figuratively they spoke face to face. No, he's invisible. You've never seen him. But you believe in him. Now, the time has come when I'm going to leave. And I'm going to take my departure to the Father. He'll tell them all that in the course of his discourse with them. And you won't see me either. Believe also in me. Now he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Of course, he'd spoken about his Father's house back in chapter 2 of the Gospel. A very different Father's house. There he's speaking about the temple, but he gives it status, the status of his father's house. And they've made his father's house a house of merchandise. That house had been corrupted. Mind you, it got worse with the passing of the years. Three years later, he's going to cleanse the temple again. And this time he said, it's a den of thieves. A house of merchandise? Bad enough. But now it has become a den of thieves. John Grant used to describe it as being the place where the temple mafia operated. And I suppose that is right. But now, a different father's house. And he's speaking about a realm that can never be defiled, can never be corrupted. Yonder glory in my father's house are many mansions. Now, I would hardly need to say that he's not speaking about stately homes. I remember when I was young, I was at a wedding. And you know how it is at weddings. After the meal, there's a little bit of uh, entertainment for the people. And there were two sisters who were entertaining us by singing a gospel song. And uh, it was, uh, I'm satisfied with a cottage below. Well, I know that one of them wasn't satisfied with a cottage. You wouldn't have seen the place that she, she lived in, but that was the song. I'm satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver, a little gold, but, you know, a mansion over the hilltop. Well, that hymn has got a lot going for it. It's got a great catchy tune. It's got a great catchy tune. But the theology is awful. My dear friends, it is not a stately home. The word simply means an abode. And further down the chapter, the Lord Jesus will employ the word again when he speaks about those who love him and the respect that his Father will have for those who love him. And we will come and make our abode with them. My brother and my sister, we're on the way home. And when we get there, there will be a, an abiding place for us. But in the meantime, Father and Son abide with us on the way home. And that is thrilling just to think that divine persons company with the saints of God on their homeward journey. But the time is coming when we'll enter that abode 
that has been provided for us. Many abodes in my father's house are many abodes. And the Lord says, you know, I'm absolutely transparent. If it were not so, I would have told you. Doesn't the Bible say, no guile in his mouth, no deceit in his mouth. He would never have pulled the wool over his eyes. Never said anything to mislead them in any way. If it were not so, I would have told you. My brother and my sister, it would be so good if every one of us were characterized by the same transparency as marked him. Sometimes we exaggerate if it's going to be to our benefit. Sometimes we tell part of the truth without telling a lot, but we tell part of the truth to leave an impression, an impression that's wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ was guileless. And so he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Now, if this was a Bible reading, this is where the needle would get stuck. I go to prepare a place for you. And again, maybe young people have no idea in this technological age of what I mean when I speak about the needle getting stuck. But the old people remember the vinyl records and it going round and round and, you know, it wouldn't get into the next groove and it would just play the same sentence over and over and over again. And the needle had got stuck. Well, in a Bible reading, we would maybe have the needle getting stuck here. Because there would inevitably be two views. I go to prepare a place for you. And some of our dear brethren would say, he's speaking about going to Calvary. The shedding of his blood. The sacrifice for sins. And uh, he's going to prepare a place for us by dying on the cross. And others would say, no, really. He's speaking about going back to heaven, really. And he's going there to prepare a place for us. Well, I would go with the second of these ideas. Nobody likes a preacher to sit on the fence. I would go with the second of these ideas simply because it seems to me that what he's saying is this. It's the place that I'm going to from whence I'll return. So it seems to me that he's saying, I'm going to the Father's house, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and it's from that venue that I'll come again. Some of the preachers have put it this way. He went to the cross to prepare a people for the place. But he's gone to heaven to prepare a place for the people. You see, the epistle to the Hebrews speaks of him as our forerunner. Inside the veil, that's where the forerunner has entered. And the Lord Jesus, now a man who's passed through death and has been raised and has been ascended and a glorified man in yonder heavens prepares the place for those who are coming behind him. Oh, my dear friends, it's thrilling to know that the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare that place for us. His very presence there as a glorified man prepares the place for those who will follow in his train. Now he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And he promised he's going to come again. And the scoffers of the last days, says Peter, say, where is the promise of his coming? And they'll say, things will just go on as they've always gone on. I mean, God has never intervened in human affairs. Right from the start, wrong, says Peter, he intervened at the flood. 
Have you forgotten that? And he will intervene again. I don't suppose that the folk who are saying, where is the promise of his coming, are familiar with all the niceties of God's great prophetic program. They would hardly be able to distinguish between the rapture and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're thinking in general terms just about some promise that he'll come again. We don't believe it, they're saying. And Peter is saying, look, the reason he hasn't come yet is this. It's not that he's slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering to us, Lord. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is just possible that in this meeting tonight, there are people who would have been left behind if the Lord Jesus had come yesterday. Left behind to face a holocaust of the judgment of God in this world, described by the Saviour as the Great Tribulation. Left behind to ultimately experience the judgment of God forever and ever and ever. If Christ had come yesterday, some of you here would be doomed. It hasn't come yet. And there's opportunity for you tonight to take on board the glorious truth of the gospel that you're a sinner who needs a saviour and Christ died in shame on Calvary's old rugged cross and triumphed over the grave to make it possible for you to be right with God. And if you were to repent tonight and believe in the Lord Jesus, all would be well for the great eternity. And should he come tonight, you would be among those who would be raptured, caught up to meet him in the air. It's not that he's slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering to us, but not willing that any should perish. And so he promises here, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Oh, chapter 1 speaks about us receiving him. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. And Christians in the meeting can look back to that time in life's history when they received him. And John explains what is meant by that. Believing on his name, you believed on his name, and thus you received him, and you became a child of God. You were born again into the family. You received him. But now he's speaking about a day when he'll receive you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Where I am, where is he? He's in the Father's house. He's at the right hand of the majesty of high. And that's where you'll be. Where I am, there ye may be also. And my dear friends, we're not going to be there just as his companions but we're going to see him in all his glory do you remember his prayer in chapter 17 father I will that them also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory didn't we open our meeting on that note look ye saints the sight is glorious See the man of sorrows now, from the fight return victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Oh yes, we'll view the Lord Jesus majestic, resplendent, preeminent, glorified, beholding 
his glory. No wonder we sing at times, what a day, glorious day that will be. And so the Lord says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I want to pause at this with a technical point. It's not too late in the meeting to throw in a technical point. If it was nearer half past eight, it might just tip you over the edge as far as falling asleep is concerned. But I was taught in our Bible class at home when I was very young that the tense of the verb here is important. And the Lord was saying something like this. I go, I come again. As if there was nothing in between. In fact, the revised version says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I come again. G.N. Darby's new translation says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again. And so what they're saying is this. It's imminent. In a sense, there's nothing in between. It's going and he's coming. Well, we know that the age of grace intervenes. But what the Lord was teaching on this early occasion regarding his coming again, we ought to expect it imminently. The brethren have often told us there are no prophecies to be fulfilled before he comes. They are right. When he came the first time, a man preached for six months and said, He's coming. In fact, before his birth, an angel intimated, He's coming. I want to tell you, friends, prior to the rapture, no angel will intimate, He's coming. Nobody will be preaching with authority, He's coming. Oh, I know that people make their predictions. There was a man in America two or three years ago who got egg all over his face, big style, when he said, He's coming in. Was it May the 17th? I can't remember. And he didn't come. And then it was deferred till October. And he didn't come in October either. It's dangerous to predict the date of his coming. The point is he could come tonight. And if you look at all the New Testament preachers, every one of them suggests the imminence of the return of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to rattle off a few of the quotes Maybe you won't all agree that they all relate specifically to the rapture, but they're thinking of future times and explaining we ought to be seeing them as coming soon. James. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. John. Little children, it is the last time. Paul. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Jude, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anonymous, yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And the final promise of scripture from the Lord himself. Surely I come quickly. So suddenly, dramatically, without warning, it will be a fait accompli. He'll be here and we'll be there. I go. I come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So we have the promise of his coming in John chapter 14. I think, mind you, he had hinted at the events surrounding his coming as far back as chapter 11. 
And in chapter 11 he'd said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And you might say, well, what do you mean? Just this. The Lord was saying, even although people believe in him, they could take sick and die. <coughs> well, they'll be raised again. When? And he's coming. Now we're dependent on other scriptures to explain that to us. But he is the resurrection. And that takes care of the fact that saints have fallen asleep and they need resurrection and it will take place at the rapture. But then he indicated that there would be a people of God on earth still alive at the point of time at which he will come. He that liveth and believeth in me. And that's where we are tonight. We're still living. And we're among those who believe on him. And so if he were to come tonight, we would never die. And you might say, well, you need to explain that. Well, the Lord explained it, or rather Paul explained it, in what he called a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be chained in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Now that's thrilling to think about. A mystery. As says Paul, it wasn't divulged in the Old Testament. And while the Lord hinted at it, he didn't divulge the details fully. And he said nothing about it in the great discourse that we call the Olivet Discourse. So this is something novel. This is something that has been revealed to me, says Paul, as one of the holy apostles and prophets... And it is my responsibility now to communicate it. It's a truth that God had cloistered in his own holy heart. But now he was revealing it. And it's a mystery, says Paul. But here it is. We shall not all sleep. Don't we sing at times, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. And we love to think about that. Mind you, it is a delightful metaphor, that sleep, isn't it? And please... Do remember it relates exclusively to the body of the believer, not to his soul. Uh, as Stephen was anticipating martyrdom, you remember that he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he expected the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. And thereafter, he fell on sleep. And that related to his body. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over But his spirit was with Christ. When Paul anticipated his decease, he said it's to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. And indeed he said about us all in 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, at home with the Lord. And what could be sweeter than home, sweet home? So the metaphor of sleep relates exclusively to the body. There is no such thing as soul sleep. And the metaphor is conveying to us this concept. There's an awakening out of sleep. Do you know, there are some people who go to sleep on me when I'm preaching to them. Particularly on a Sunday afternoon. We call that the graveyard slot. All the preachers say that's the graveyard slot. Sunday afternoon. And everybody's at a big Sunday dinner and, and they go to sleep on you. I'll tell you something though 
I'd never once left the gospel hall and turned the key in the door and left anyone sitting on the bench or in the seat. Never once. Never happened once. Never once. They're always waking up. There's always an awakening out of sleep. You think about Lazarus, for example. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. But now this. I go that I might awaken him out of sleep. And so the state of death for the believer is only a temporary thing. It's sleep pending the day of resurrection. But we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we're all going to be changed. For flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. We need a body suitable for the environment to which we're going. And we're going to be changed, says the word of God. When I was a boy sitting in meetings and listening to the preachers, particularly in gospel meetings, threatening us, really, that the Lord could come during the course of the meeting, and if you're not saved, you'll be left behind. And as a little fellow, you know, you understand this was a childish mind. As a little fellow, I looked at the ceiling and I knew that there was a roof above that ceiling and I wondered how all these people could be evacuated in that direction, you know, all of a sudden. But then, as you read your Bible, you discover that the change will take place first. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it's regarding the change that the Bible says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So whenever the trumpet sounds, in a split second, the body of every believer will be changed. And to use the words of Philippians chapter 3, they will now possess a body like unto his body of glory. And I'm sure you remember that in his resurrection body, the Lord Jesus passed through locked doors. And he appeared and disappeared at will. So, you know, to get back to my problem as a little boy, it's no problem at all. Because the body gets changed. And whether there's a ceiling or a roof or any other impediment will make no difference. The mystery says, we'll not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So the Lord had hinted at that in John chapter 11, when he said, He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. But to come to First Thessalonians 4, and just let me put you at ease. I don't think we're going to get to speak about the coming of the Lord pictured in Enoch. So, just in case you're getting alarmed and you think you're going to be sitting till midnight, and you'll maybe fall out the window like Eutychus did. Just don't get too upset. We'll maybe just confine ourselves to the two points. And thinking about First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's thinking of the mechanics of the rapture. And he's giving a stage-by-stage account of what will take place. We haven't time to expound the whole passage. It really begins at verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them that are asleep. (coughs) They were fairly au fait with Bible doctrine regarding the future. In fact, chapter 5 tells us, Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. So they had the most of it at their fingertips. 
I know that you can't get a crash course in spiritual things, but it seems to me that in the short time that Paul was at Thessalonica, he'd given them a crash course on Bible prophecy, and they seemed to have imbibed it pretty well. But there was one piece of the jigsaw missing. They couldn't understand what had become of those who had fallen asleep. And it was to cater for that deficiency that Paul penned these verses under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we come to verse 15, where we started our reading, he's saying, This we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now please, it's not a figment of my own imagination. You won't find it in the Old Testament or in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to assure you, I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord, And he's emphasizing again that as a New Testament prophet, he had received this communication from heaven. And now it was his responsibility to pass it on to the believers. I'm saying it by the word of the Lord. We, which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent, precede those who are asleep. We learn from Philippians chapter 1. That Paul had two kind of things before him. Number one, he wondered about, would he stay on with the saints? Or would he be martyred and depart to be with Christ? What was his preference? To depart to be with Christ, which is far better. No problem about deciding that. When you come to 2 Corinthians 5, there seems to be two things facing him. Number one, his earthly house of the tabernacle being dissolved. In other words, dying. Or to use his words from Philippians 1, departing to be with Christ. Second option in 2 Corinthians 5, being clothed upon with his house which is from heaven. That is, having the changed body that he would receive at the rapture. Now, he says, as far as these two preferences are concerned, I would go with number two. I would prefer, I would prefer to be alive <coughs> at the rapture. I don't want to die, really. Oh, I'm happy to die because I'm going to be with Christ. But my preference would be to be still alive when he comes. But the thing is, friends, he's showing now that it makes no odds, really. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he shows that there is no advantage in being still alive when the Lord Jesus comes, or to put it conversely, there is no particular disadvantage in having died before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have fallen asleep, they will not precede us in any way. And you say, well, now, Paul, you'll have to explain that to us. Well, here's the explanation. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Wonderful that, isn't it? The Lord himself. Oh, it's been taught us so frequently that when he appears in power and great glory, when he comes right to planet Earth, when his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, then he'll send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of heaven. And friends, when it comes to regathering, the elect of Israel, he's going to delegate that job to angels. But for you and me, he'll handle it personally. The Lord 
himself shall descend from heaven. Himself, it's a great word, isn't it? Looking back to the cross, who his own self bear our sins in his own body of the tree. Or to use a literal translation of Hebrews, where himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. He did it himself, personally, alone. No assistance. Oh, he said of his disciples, These are they which have continued with me in my temptation. But when it got near to the cross, they were dismissed. If you seek me, let these go their way. He was going to deal with this personally and alone. (coughs) Don't we sing it movingly at times? Alone. Alone. He bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered, bled and died alone. Alone. So looking back to Calvary, we rejoice in the word himself. Thinking of present circumstances, we rejoice in the word himself. Of the two on the way to Emmaus, it was that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And my brother, my sister, along the pathway of life, so frequently you've experienced it, haven't you? When the wind was in your face, when the storm was raging and beating about your head, Jesus himself drew near and went with you. But now looking to the future, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. You know, if he's going to make any movement at all, it'll have to be a downward movement because he can't go any higher than he already is. Didn't we sing it earlier in the hymn Ian intimated for us? Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight of force. Watch him in Ephesians 1. And he's lying inert in a tomb. And then suddenly the mighty power of God comes into play. The mighty power of God that raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principalities and power. Not just above, but far above all. Listen to it from Philippians 2. God also hath exalted him. Not at all. God has highly exalted him. Listen to it from the words of the prophet. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He can go no higher than he already is. He's at the very pinnacle of glory. So if he's going to make any movement, it'll have to be a downward movement. And bless God, he will descend. Descend from heaven with a shout. He spoke about the voice of the Son of God in John chapter 5. And the hour has come and now is when the dead shall hear his voice. Now that's the spiritually dead. Because he's saying the hour has come and now is. And when the voice of the Son of God is heard, it effects spiritual quickening for the spiritually dead. But then he says this. The hour is coming. Now he doesn't add and now is. The hour is coming. This is future. The hour is coming when they that are in the grave shall hear his voice. They that are in the grave. That's not the spiritually dead. He's making clear. I'm indicating now the physically dead. They're in the grave. 
when they that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. I'm not going to expound that verse any further. If you read it carelessly, you might think that there's a general day of resurrection, but it's explained elsewhere in Scripture that there's no such thing as a general day of resurrection. And really now, the voice of the Son of God is heard. He's coming with a shout. And my dear friends, that shout will bring from the grave the saints who've fallen asleep. He's coming with a a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Now scholars tell us that this is a, a term that means archangelic voice. That is, it's the voice of Christ, but characteristically archangelic, authoritative, absolutely authoritative. But it is interesting that whenever you read of the archangel in the word of God, he's always in a sphere of conflict in the spirit realm. As far as I can see, there only is one archangel. There's only one of the angels designated an archangel, and that is Michael. And whenever you read about Michael, he's involved in conflict in the spirit realm, in the book of Daniel, in the book of the Revelation. Michael and his angels versus the dragon and his angels. And then in the book of Jude, he's in conflict with the devil. And would you believe it? The point of conflict is a body. A body. And that's what we're thinking about here. Bodies. And they're in conflict about the body of Moses in the epistle by Jude. And now bodies are going to be raised. But the Lord Jesus is coming with archangelic voice. Absolutely authoritative. Satan will be able to do nothing to thwart his purpose. In fact, we're going to see just in a moment... That the place where the people of God will be mustered is the very sphere in which Satan operates. The air. He's the prince of the power of the air. But the Lord will exhibit such disdain for the attempts of the evil one to thwart his purpose. That the air will be the very place where the people of God are gathered together. Oh, Paul wrote in this Thessalonian epistle, Satan hindered us. I want to tell you, friends, when it comes to the rapture of the saints, Satan will not be able to do anything to hinder that event. He's coming with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Now, don't link this in your mind with the memorial of the blowing of trumpets in the book of Leviticus. Within the framework of the seven feasts of the Lord, that particular feast has more to do with the regathering of Israel. I virtually quoted the verse from Matthew 24 already when he's sending his angels out to gather his elect and the Bible says he's sending them out with the great sound of a trumpet. So the memorial of the blowing of trumpets points forward to the regathering of Israel prophetically. And and please, don't link this trump of God with the trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. These trumpet judgments, which will peak during the Great Tribulation, they're subsequent to this. But I do think that this links up with the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the trumpet shall sound. And it's described there as the last trump. And anyone who was familiar with the Roman camp would have known that there was a series of trumpets. (coughs) To gather the soldiers, to get them to strike camp. 
But the last trump was, time to march. My brother and my sister, when the last trump sounds, the trump of God, it will be an indication it is time for us to abandon planet Earth and march to another clime. He's coming with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now he's not saying they're going to rise before the unconverted dead, although they will. But more than a thousand years will elapse. A thousand and seven years at least before the unconverted dead will be raised. And you'll read about that in Revelation chapter 20. What he's saying here is this. The dead in Christ shall be raised before the living saints are caught away. They will rise first. That's item number one. The resurrection of sleeping saints. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, now here's our concept of rapture, caught up, caught up together with them. So momentarily, let me put it that way, momentarily, every saint of this church age will be there together on planet Earth, momentarily only. Raised saints, living saints, momentarily, they're all there, and then they're all gone. Caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. Some people say, well, we recognise them. Well, it says caught up together with them. Do you recognise them now? Do you think they're going to be any less intelligent then? Paul speaks of the fact that, you know, there are Philippian believers who are going to be his joy, his crown of rejoicing. And he obviously thinks he's going to recognise them. All right. I know that when we think of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're thinking of the fact that we'll see him. I shall know my Redeemer, we sing. By the print of the nails in his hand. Well, the print of the nails in his hands will be one of the distinguishing features. But I'm not sure that when we sing glory in him dwelling, will ne'er declare him mine. I have a strong feeling that the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus will mark him out as being the one who has won our heart's affections. But at any rate, we're thinking of the fact we're going to meet him. But reunion is embedded in this chapter. And it seems to me that if there's no concept of reunion, the whole point of the passage is destroyed. I know, I know that family relationships will never be resumed. I understand that perfectly. The Lord Jesus taught that. Family relationships will never be resumed. But at the same time, he's teaching we're going to be caught up together with them. Interesting, that little English word together features in chapter 5 again. And he'll tell us that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we watch or sleep, we should live together with him. My brother, my sister, we'll be caught up together with them. And that is just preparatory to living together with him in that coming day. Of glory. So, caught up together with them in clouds. Is that a little cloud from the city of Aberdeen and a cloud from Peterhead and a little cloud from Mintlaw? 
I, I don't think so. I think what he's speaking about is clouds. I, I know you sing the cloudless day is nearing, but it's not really going to be a cloudless day. Only figuratively will it be a cloudless day. We're going to be caught up in the atmospheric clouds. It's almost the equivalent of the air. And we'll meet him, we'll meet the Lord in the air. Presently, we're numbered among those of whom Peter spoke. You've never seen him, but you love him. And Peter, or rather Paul, is saying here, one of these days, you will meet him. And for the very first time, you'll gaze on his lovely face. That face once so marred. We shall gaze on at length and fearless behold as the sun in its strength. Those eyes, flames of fire, which so searching we prove, shall beam on us then in expressible love. We will meet the Lord. And I suppose it's illustrated in the story of the unnamed servant of of Abraham as he brings a bride for Isaac. And she sees a man meditating in the field. If you're a bachelor and looking for a wife, you should try it. Just go out and meditate in the field some of these nights and maybe something unusual will happen. I don't know. But at any rate, he's meditating in the field. And she comes to hoots. And Paul Gerthardt caught the sentiments of that. Who is this who comes to meet me on the desert way? As the morning star foretelling God's unclouded day, he it is who came to win me on the cross of shame. In his glory well I know him, evermore the same. We'll meet the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And no wonder, no wonder, Paul said, comfort, encourage one another with these words. He's looking around the assembly for someone whom he can surname Barnabas, the son of exhortation, and he say, encourage, exhort, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we bow again before thee in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we're thankful that he came the first time, and we bless thee that he came into the world to save sinners, and we know that at this time of the year the world thinks about it. Help them to realise the purpose for which he came. We pray, O God, that many with whom we have contact might realise he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And we pray thee, our Father, that they might see in that one their only hope of salvation and come to trust him. But we're grateful that we anticipate his return and we're thankful for his precious promise. If I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. In the meantime, keep us faithful. We know, our Father, that it might not be long. And we sometimes say, Maranatha, our Lord cometh, and it could be tonight. And we pray thee, O God, that each one of us, as far as our moral and spiritual condition is concerned, might be in a state of readiness for the return of the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for the provision made for us, and we pray for a blessing and a little time of fellowship. And we ask thee that soon as thy people make their homeward way, everyone (coughs) might be taken in safety. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Irene has a closing hymn for us.
Thanks for us, as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus, that we should find to be this strong that there will be close a few of those here left. More of Jesus, would I know, by certain one. More of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness he, more of his love who dies for me, more of Jesus in his work, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every life, making each funeral to stand and, and sing them together after the instruction. Five, seven, one, please. <laughs> Oh